Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And uh, if you're with us tonight and uh, you do not have a Bible, just wave to the men that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. We remember that Jesus is now literally in the last uh, couple of days uh, of his life and his ministry prior to his death upon the cross uh, for our sins. And we saw last week that uh, they were, as he was observing, uh, people putting their money into the treasury, and he saw the widow putting out of her necessity into the treasury, that they're in the area of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus never spent a single night, the, fa- uh, the last week of his life, uh, in Jerusalem. He always made his way back out across the Kidron Valley, over onto the eastern side uh, of, uh, of that Kidron Valley, and spent the night in the city of Bethany, where he had friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, so he's, they're in that temple area. It gives us kind of the context of his location, and, and that's important for what he, he says next. The teaching of Jesus here that's recorded by uh, Mark in a, in a single chapter here is known as the Olivet Discourse. You notice in verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew uh, approached him. So it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus taught it uh, from the Mount of Olives looking back upon the city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley and the temple that was uh, located there. The gospel, according to Mark, uh, as as Mark does repeatedly in his gospel, is he gives us a kind of compressed, a contracted uh, uh, version uh, of the Olivet Discourse, the the fullest version of of Jesus' discourse uh, concerning the end times is found in Matthew's gospel. And so you would want to study it from there for being able to put all of the pieces together. I'll interpret uh, Mark chapter 13 uh, based upon the understanding of what Matthew laid out in his gospel as we studied in, in a previous gospel uh, uh, some time ago. As we're told in uh, that in Matthew's gospel, I'll read a couple of verses to you, chapter 23, chapter 24, it constitutes the Olivet Discourse, but all of it is introduced by uh, Jesus declaring over the city of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen uh, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then Jesus declared very significantly for our purposes tonight, he said, See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you that you shall see me no more uh, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Matthew chapter 23 closes with uh, with this lament of Jesus over the city of Jerusalem, that even in this late hour prior to his crucifixion, kind of the headquarters of the religious establishment, they were still uh, rejecting him, refused to see him for who he was, and, um, and it kept him from being the protector of the city that he, that he longed to be. When Jesus spoke and he said, see your house is left to you desolate, 
uh, when he refers to your house, he is referring to uh, the temple, that it would be left uh, desolate, which is exactly what ended up happening to it in 70 AD when the Romans came in and, uh, and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple as well. So that kind of uh, sets the stage uh, for us uh, for verse 1 as Jesus has spoken about the destruction of the temple. And then, uh, as he went out of the temple, uh, one of the disciples said to him, uh, Teacher, uh, see, I mean, take a look at the, what manner of stones and what uh, buildings are here in terms of, of the temple. And it wasn't like Jesus wasn't familiar with the temple and now they're going to give him a tour related to it. But what they're kind of doing, the disciples are with Jesus, is Jesus, uh, listen, we know, we know it's been a, a long day for you and uh, probably a difficult day for you. And you've spoken of the destruction of the temple. And so I was going to ask you a question and give you a little chance to kind of retract uh, from declaring that the temple is going to be left uh, uh, desolate uh, here. And, uh, and, and, of course, the disciples were very surprised at Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. It was an absolute marvel, really, in the ancient world. I mean, built by Herod the Great, uh, the dimensions of it, the materials of it, it covered about 13 acres. Uh, we're on 16, almost 17 acres here in terms of uh, the church grounds. Uh, it was built of uh, white limestone. And as if that wouldn't have been beautiful enough, they covered it with marble and gold. Uh, many of the stones the uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us used in the construction of the temple, 40 feet long, uh, 12 uh, feet wide, 20 feet tall, uh, weighing 165 tons. It's, it's a marvel. Some of the stones that make up the foundation wall that is known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall uh, in Jerusalem, uh, those uh, retaining uh, stones that made up the retaining wall weighed, some of them 600 tons. The interesting thing about uh, some of this is that Herod began building the temple in 20 B.C., and, and it would continue to be built until 64 A.D., and uh, the Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., and, and the temple uh, with it. And so for over 50 years now, at the time of, of Jesus' public ministry, the Jewish people have been watching that temple go up to see certain parts of it finished and then other parts of it uh, continue. And it only existed in its completed state six years before it ended up uh, being destroyed. And, uh, and Jesus here, uh, as he speaks to them, uh, Jesus said in verse 2, answered and he said to him, do you see these great buildings uh, that you're so impressed with? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus begins by saying, your house is going to be left to you desolate. They give him some room. Somebody does to kind of backtrack a little bit. And Jesus goes even further in the other direction. He says, not only will it be left desolate, but the desolation, the destruction of the temple will be so complete that not one single stone will be left uh, upon it. This was inconceivable to uh, the disciples. It just was impossible for them to comprehend the beauty of this, that how could such a thing happen? What series of circumstances could, 
could produce that. And uh, even if they were uh, overtaken by some foreign government and conquered, the city of Jerusalem conquered, uh, surely no one would destroy the temple. You might put it to another use, but you wouldn't destroy the temple. And yet that is exactly what Jesus is saying is, is going to uh, take place. And of course, uh, it happened as, exactly as Jesus prophesied uh, again in 70 AD, uh, just less than uh, 40 years after Jesus' declaration, 66 AD, the Jews began a formal rebellion against the Roman Empire within uh, their land. And after a couple of initial successes, uh, Rome uh, didn't put up with that kind of, uh, of stuff because it would then be like a leaven that would fill the Roman Empire. Everyone would begin to rebel against their, uh, against their ruling. And so uh, Rome ultimately sent 60,000 very heavily armed, very, very experienced Roman soldiers and uh, uh, to begin their invasion of the land of Israel that had been retaken by the Jews. They began in the north, began to make their way all the day uh, down to the south, ultimately taking Masada. And, the, and, and, and here the, the, the concern and the focus is Jerusalem. And in that uh, going through the land, the destruction of the land, they killed over 100,000 uh, Jews, were either killed or sold into slavery. And then you fast forward to 70 A.D., and uh, the, the Jewish resistance against Roman rule is now concentrated entirely uh, in the city uh, of Jerusalem, and, and more specifically, in the area of the temple. The people are holed up there. The siege has been going on uh, for a long time, and a Roman general by the name of Titus, uh, uh, very fabulously uh, supplied by the Roman military with uh, the 12th, the 5th, and the 10th Ro Roman legions, famous Roman legions, uh, had been sent with Titus to uh, Israel and to Jerusalem to put an end to all of this. There was a very long battle, uh, siege. Uh, the Jews were very, very good at guerrilla warfare. They couldn't very, very well come out at, into the open and fight uh, the Romans in that kind of a way. But it was a very long, protracted, bloody battle. A lot of Roman soldiers uh, died. And then ultimately, when the, Ro when the Roman soldiers broke through onto the area of the temple, Titus himself had specifically uh, demanded and, and requested of the troops, though they had lost many friends in the battle, they were seething over all of that, but that, that when they took Jerusalem and they took the temple, that they did not destroy the temple. And, and despite uh, Titus's command, somebody threw a torch into the area of the temple. What was combustible associated with the temple began to burn, and it burned down so completely that all of the, all of the gold that uh, that was a part of the temple and the construction of the temple melted down in between the cracks of the various stones and, and, uh, and, and for a Roman soldier part of what they got paid was kind of the loot that they made off of whoever they uh, defeated and so I think probably even more so out of just an anger against the Jews 
and a determination. We're going to destroy the center of your national life, the temple, and, 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 and uh, dishearten you so much that you will never think of doing this again. That would have been enough uh, motivation for them to destroy the temple on the level that Jesus described would happen. Uh, the, the financial gain and, the, and so forth would uh, just be an additional uh, in, enticement. Over a, thou, uh, over a million uh, Jews died in Jerusalem, not counting the Roman uh, losses. And just as Jesus had said, exactly as he had said, by the time Rome got done with the temple, there was not one stone left upon another. And when those of you who have been, have been to uh, Israel with us on one of the tours, you know that one of the things we do is have the pleasure of going to the Mount of Olives. And we always pick a place to do a teaching and engage some worship there, looking across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount area. And I always pose the same question and the same question or make the same, the same observation every time. And that is everyone is invited to look across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount area. And the question is, do you see a Jewish temple there? And there is absolutely no temple on that Temple Mount uh, anymore. Completely gone, just as Jesus had uh, said uh, it, it uh, would be. And we become eyewitnesses of the fulfillment of the prophecies that Jesus gave in the Olivet uh, Discourse. And the reason that I give this kind of long introduction to all of this is because it's important, it, it helps give weight to the remainder of the chapter. And what Jesus is essentially communicating when he communicates to them about the destruction of the temple, it's not his main purpose isn't to give them a heads up on the destruction of the temple, but to let them know and let us know in the subsequent ages that as surely as his prophecy that the temple would be destroyed in so complete a manner was fulfilled and there is no temple on that temple mount today, then just as surely every single other prophecy that he puts in Mark chapter 13 here is going to come to pass. And even though it, these, these prophecies are in our future, they will happen as surely as his prophecy uh, was fulfilled related to, uh, to the temple. And, uh, and so they then were told in verse 3, uh, the, and, and, and as a part of verse 3, they obviously make their way from Jerusalem proper. They cross that Kidron Valley, and they come to the Mount of Olives, and we're told that as he sat on uh, the Mount of Olives opposite the area of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they came to him and they asked him privately, tell us, uh, when you didn't back off on what you were saying here, gave you room to do that, you doubled down, so tell us, when will these things be, number one, and what will be the sign when all of these things will uh, be uh, fulfilled? So they're still trying to process what Jesus has spoken uh, to them. They pose those two questions there. Matthew's gospel, I, th I think, provides important uh, additional clarity uh, in terms of understanding the Olivet Discourse, when uh, Matthews uh, also includes a third question that they had asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end uh, of the age? So it appears as Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, in their mind, 
this would have to be something cataclysmic in uh, world history, in, in uh, uh, Israel's history. And so it, it probably, they, they immediately thought, wow, this has got to be something associated with uh, you know, with with your coming, speaking of his second coming and and the end of the age, that and and then giving way to the millennial uh, kingdom, and so Jesus proceeds now in the remainder of the chapter to answer uh, not only the two questions that are here in, in Mark, but also the, the the third one that's found in Matthew's gospel, and he answers those three questions. And you almost have to put Matthew, uh, Luke, and Mark uh, kind of all together to understand it a little bit. I'm probably going into a little bit too much detail, but I'm not asking for a vote at the moment, um, uh, just making you aware, uh, aware of it. But uh, for some people, this is uh, of tremendous interest in, in confusion. And so I want, I, I want you to know that if you really want to uh, dig into this Olivet Discourse, you've got to look at it in, in Luke's Gospel, you've got to look at it in Matthew's Gospel, and then also as it's recorded here in Mark's Gospel. They're very much uh, complementary. And Jesus' response to uh, the first question uh, in terms of when will these things be, talking about the destruction of the temple. And, uh, uh, and so he, he records it, and he deals kind of specifically with the physical destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in, in 70 uh, uh, AD, AD. And, uh, and, and it, it, very, very clear when you, when you read the account of the Olivet Discourse in all three of the Gospels, that, uh, especially in Mark's, uh, Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, that uh, the prophecy that Jesus is giving here is, is a prophecy that goes way beyond the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and that that destruction is a type or it is a shadow of a much larger destruction that is going to come upon the world uh, in, uh, in the end of the age, an age we know as the Great Tribulation uh, period. Uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is not a match for what we see and will see uh, described in, in, uh, in, uh, in Mark's uh, handling of, of the subject matter here. It's talking about something far larger, and the only thing that matches it biblically is the seven-year tribulation period uh, that is spoken of and in, in, in detailed for us in Revelations chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 6 through uh, 19. And, and so here in Mark's uh, gospel, like uh, Matthew's gospel, Mark focuses on, uh, on Jesus' response to the final two of their three questions, focusing on the events that will immediately precede uh, Jesus' second coming and, and the end of the age, uh, and that will then give way to the kingdom age of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And, and what Jesus uh, it, it describes here again is a description of that seven-year tribulation when God pours out his wrath upon uh, a Christ-rejecting world that has just rejected and shunned God and his offer of salvation in his Son. Now, uh, he, in verse 5, he begins to describe uh, the marks of the world uh, as the uh, tribulation approaches. And uh, I am, uh, I am uh, is, as I heard David Hawking say many, many years ago, I happen to be in terms of the rapture of the church. Everybody agrees that uh, biblically that there is uh, such a thing. And uh, the only discussion that goes on is whether the rapture of the church 
to take them out of the world is going to happen before the seven-year tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation period, or at the end of the tribulation period. And as David Hawking said, I am so pre-trib, I won't eat post-toasties. Uh, uh, post uh, and, uh, and so, but I'm not going to get into all of that uh, tonight, but I will take it from that slant. And if you want to uh, tear into uh, that a little bit more thoroughly, you can go on our webpage and, and go on the media page and, and find a, a teaching that deals specifically with the tribulation, uh, 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 pre-tribulation rapture. I think it's quite compelling. Thank you very much uh, on, uh, on it. So. Uh, and so here he begins to talk about the things that are going to happen in a greater measure in the world prior to that rapture of the church that then uh, gives way to the tribulation, seven-year tribulation period. And Jesus answering them, he began to say, verse 5, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And so Jesus begins and he says that uh, at the end of the age is going to be an age of great spiritual deception. Uh, and, I mean, you, we would look at this and think, well, why doesn't he get into the wars and the rumors of the wars and famines and earthquakes and all of that first? Because as, as bad as all of those things are, um, the consequence of those things are purely temporal. Uh, to be deceived spiritually has eternal consequences related to it. So the greatest danger in terms of the end of the age is when the world gets unstable and it will get increasingly unstable in the end of the age, there will be a, a greater propensity for religious leaders to arise, people putting their hope in these religious leaders to, uh, in, in the face of... Uh, of the difficulty of life. And so Jesus said, uh, take heed that no one deceives you in this regard. And then he said in verse 7, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen and uh, the end is not yet. So it doesn't mean, uh, I mean we live in a world that's filled with wars and rumors of wars, that is wars that are actively going on. Rumors of wars are wars that are like brewing. I mean, the, the people are uh, verbally clashing with one another and a war could break out any time. The world that we live in is quite a tinderbox uh, in terms of this kind of thing. And, uh, and so Jesus, it, Jesus isn't saying, you know, don't uh, try and uh, have peace treaties and, and, and navigate peacefully as best as you can in terms of negotiations and diplomacy and all. He's just saying that the world will never know peace until he returns because he is the Prince of Peace. He'll bring it not only to Jerusalem, but to the whole world during that thousand-year reign. Won't that be something? No wars, no rumors of wars. Wow. But in the meantime, it's our portion. It has always been our portion. I remember reading years ago in a, a book that was talking about um, in all of uh, the world's uh, recorded history how many years there were in man's history that, in which there were no wars going on. And it was something like 70 years. <laughs> so uh, we've been a pretty warlike uh, uh, people. And, and this will continue to uh, the time of the rapture. Kingdom will rise up against, a nation will rise up against nation, that's war, and kingdom against kingdom. This is the insurrection that goes on within individual countries, the instability within nations. This is as is, is bad as at any time I've been alive uh, in, in that regard. There will be earthquakes in various places. 
And the idea is in unusual places as well as the usual places. And then there will be famines and, uh, and troubles. Uh, and these are the beginning of sorrows. And so uh, and when he speaks about the troubles that he's talking about there, essentially Jesus is telling us that the rapture of the church and the tribulation period that follows uh, that, thing, until that time, things are going to grow worse and worse. They're going to continue to uh, seriously unravel on literally on every level uh, in the world. It's going to fragment. It's going to destabilize uh, spiritually, physically, uh, materially, politically, and uh, in a real uh, scary way. And we see that going on. When Jesus says here in verse 8, these are the beginning of sorrows, it's easy to look at these kind of things. And you say, these are kind of general uh, things, talking about spiritual deception and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and troubles. I mean, this has been a part of human history uh, from the very beginning. And uh, so, what kind of a heads up is this? And Jesus makes it clear when he talks about these are the beginning of sorrows. He's talking about birth pangs for a woman when she gives birth to a child. Uh, when a woman is going to give birth to a child, uh, there are the contractions, the birth pangs that begin to occur. And, uh, uh, the, you know, you have the, birth, the first contraction, and then all the way from the first contraction where everybody's excited, is this it? Let's get to the hospital, to all the way where, she, you know, she's screaming uh, in the delivery room. Just kidding. Uh, but, uh, you know, all the way along, these contractions are getting stronger, and they're getting more and more frequent. And that's what Jesus is saying is that not that these things are going, to, are going to be happening for the first time in human history at the end of the age, but they will be happening until they are happening one on top of another and with a greater and greater uh, severity. There will be a, a strong sense of, uh, in, uh, of the fact that we, uh, people cannot uh, control that. And so that's what we look for. We see these kind of things that is it evidence that uh, the Lord's return is uh, drawing near. And of course, we see this evidence uh, all around us. He said, and now in, in verse 9, he begins to talk about things that are going to characterize the first three and a half years uh, of the seven-year uh, tribulation. And, uh, and Matthew's record of the sermon makes it very clear that uh, these things are called uh, the beginning of sorrows. And so, uh, it, again, working off of Matthew's outline, here in verse 9, we head formally uh, into the tribulation period, which I believe will be, uh, as Christians, removed prior to that. But he said, but watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before uh, rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. So someone says, well, what in the world do we have? We've got Christians in the Great Tribulation, and, uh, or in the Tribulation period. And uh, there, there will be. There will be, the Bible teaches that the number of people who will become saved during the seven-year seven tribulation period will be, you know, the numbers are you 10,000 times 10,000. I mean, it's like a number that you, the number of people will be so many. 
Um, and think about how many of your friends, your family members, how many people are aware of the fact that you as a Christian and the rapture they've been taught maybe as a child in church or something like this and want nothing to do with it all. And then when it happens, when the Christians are gone in mass in a moment of this, this uh, uh, great deliverance of us because we're not appointed unto God's wrath, and that's what the great tribulation is. God pouring His wrath out upon the world and that people will realize, wow, He was right, they were right, and, uh, and then uh, get in line and, and uh, uh, to, to become Christians. One of the problems in that first three and a half years of the tribula tribulation period is that the first seal that is broken uh, to start the tribulation period is going to be the unveiling of the Antichrist, as we see in the book of Revelation. One of the things that he will do is he will establish an economic kind of uh, kingdom first, uh, a, a, an e economic system, and one in which ultimately no one on the earth will be able to uh, buy or sell without taking a, a mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead. The technology for all of that is uh, all around us even today. And, uh, and so he will, he will take that kind of control. Christians who become Christians during the tribulation period will know not to take the mark of the beast, as it's called. And uh, so they will be caught. They will be identified, at least in this way. And they will be uh, delivered up to councils. They'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake and for a testimony uh, to them. And so it's going to be rough going to be uh, a Christian, one who becomes a Christian, not prior to the rapture of the church, but after. But even there, uh, better late than never, it's still, uh, it's still worth it. And, uh, uh, and so all of this uh, going on here in verse 9, and the gospel uh, must first be preached to all of the nations. We know that the 144,000 Jews uh, mentioned in Revelation will be engaged in that, an angel will be engaged in that during the tribulation period. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not uh, worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, to uh, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother shall betray brother to death, and a father his uh, child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my uh, name's sake. I don't know how many of you watched the Kavanaugh hearings in the last couple of weeks. I suspect most of us did. What a national shame. What an embarrassment. A national shame. But it gave a, a, a very good glimpse uh, to any Christian, and certainly a very good glimpse to uh, anyone that would dare to oppose uh, abortion, by the way, and uh, which is, was at the core of all of this, and to see how ruthless uh, people can come, how destructive they can become. And you think about the tribulation period where uh, the church is going to be removed, the righteous influence of the church uh, in the world, the Holy Spirit is going to be removed in terms of His involvement in that kind of a way, and these people are not going to be limited at all. And they will do whatever they want to do with anyone who uh, uh, holds an opposing view to them, and, uh, and, and in the tribulation period, they will put Christians to death for simply being uh, Christians. But it was an interesting glimpse in how far along we are uh, in the progression 
uh, on things. And then Jesus said, he who endures uh, to the end uh, will be uh, saved. And so uh, these tribulation saints who endure to the end uh, of the tribulation, they're going to be uh, physically delivered uh, from all of uh, this trouble uh, at, and persecution at Jesus' second coming. And so there will be those uh, Christians, people who become Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, and uh, they survive uh, the seven-year tribulation. And all the way to the end uh, of the age, to, the, to uh, Jesus' second coming, and that second coming will be uh, what saves them. Jesus goes on to say, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing uh, where it ought not, let the reader understand and let those uh, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so the abomination of desolation occurs right smack in the middle of that uh, seven-year tribulation period. Seven-year tribulation period, it's all called the tribulation. Um, but the midpoint uh, at the three-and-a-half mark, the last uh, uh, three-and-a-half years are called the Great Tribulation. The first three-and-a-half years, I mean, it's going to be tremendous persecution against Christians and the Antichrist establishing his control uh, out, of, uh, out of Europe, out of the old Roman uh, Empire, control of the economies of the world and, and becoming kind of the, the, the last world-ruling empire. Uh, of the world, and all of that is going to be going on. But, but for the world as a whole, those three and a half years are going to be great. It's, it, it, I mean, the, the economies of the world are going to be humming, and and it, it, it's, it's and everyone's going. Oh man, we, we there was no loss getting rid of those Christians. Man, that was the best thing that ever happened when those UFOs came and took them, or however they decide to uh, explain the whole thing. And uh, so it's going to, it, it's, everything's going to be going good for three and a half years. And the Antichrist is going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. And, uh, and then as they rebuild their temple and reestablish their worship of God at their rebuilt temple, at the three and a half year mark of the, great, uh, of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will uh, wake up one morning and he will walk straight onto the grounds of the temple and he will walk right into the holy of place through that and into the holy of holies which represents the presence of God in, in the temple area and he will sit himself there and he will declare himself to the world to be God and he will demand to be worshipped as God. And at that moment, the Jews will realize we have made a horrible, horrible mistake. Uh, the Jews are very much set up today in their rejection of Jesus, set up uh, to ultimately uh, perhaps recognize the Antichrist as, uh, as their uh, Messiah. And uh, they believe that the Antichrist is not, or the, that the Christ is not going to be divine. He's just going to be a great man who will allow us to rebuild our temple and reestablish our sacrificial worship, which is the, what the Antichrist is going to do. So if they view him then in some extraordinary way or as, as the Christ, as a, a, as a result of, uh, of all of this, then uh, the setup is, is in full swing uh, here today. What they expect, they, what, they, what they say, this will mark uh, the Messiah. 
coming into human history is exactly what the Bible says the Antichrist is going to do. And, uh, uh, and uh, of this coming deception, Jesus declared uh, to the Jewish religious leaders uh, of his day that their rejection of him as the promised Messiah, it's going to leave them very, very vulnerable to the very deception that's going to come down the road, and that is believing that the Antichrist himself uh, is their promised Messiah. John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said to them, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will uh, receive. But it won't just be the Jews that will be enamored with this Antichrist. The whole world will consider him to be the, 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 great, uh, the great one that is, uh, is going to be, you know, take uh, mankind and human history into its next uh, kind of leap. But, but the fact that we're on very much on Jewish ground here is clear in, uh, in uh, verse 14 through uh, verse 18. Jesus, remember the, remember the tribulation period. This is one of the problems with putting uh, the church in the tribulation period. People see the word elect in these sections of Scripture and automatically assume that it's talking about the church. Uh, but the tribulation saints, though, to come to know the Lord during the great tribulation period, uh, they will, at becoming Christians, they are the elect. And so you're, you just have to look at who this word elect is referring to, and, and it can be referring here uh, and does refer to people that are going to come to know the Lord, Jews and Gentiles, during the tribulation period. But that seven-year tribulation period is not uh, primarily for uh, the Gentile world. It certainly isn't about God's dealings with the church. Uh, it's called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a, it's a time for the Jews. You remember when Daniel received the prophecy that 77s are determined upon your people for all of these great things to happen, including the recognition of Messiah. And we talked just a week or two ago about how 69 of those seven-year periods uh, were fulfilled in the time between uh, the decree that was given to rebuild uh, the wall in, in, in Jerusalem to the time of Jesus coming uh, and, and making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, that's just the 69 sevens. And, but there is a 70th seven. There is one final seven-year period of God's dealing with the Jews uh, that will bring them then to recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah and giving him that place uh, within their nation. And so the tribulation period is mostly uh, to, to deal with the Jews. And so when this happens, Jesus said, let the, uh, as Mark tells us, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea, uh, not in um, uh, Turlock, uh, so he's talking about Jews. Let him flee to the mountain. Let him who is on the housetop. We don't live on our housetops, but they live in the housetops in Israel. Not go down into the house, nor enter in to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant 
and to those who were nursing uh, babies in those days because that will make it even harder to flee and pray that your flight uh, may not be uh, in, uh, in the winter. And, uh, and so these uh, events that are going to be happening, this abomination that causes uh, desolation. And then in, in, as we get into verse 19, now we have the, the great tribulation, the last, second half, three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. For in those days, uh, and, and the abomination that causes desolation, that, that starts things uh, from that point. Now it's the second three and a half years. For in those days there will be tribulation, uh, difficulty, shaking, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God uh, created until this time, nor ever shall be. Uh, the world's been through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been through a worldwide flood. Even in terms of recent history in, in the world, we had two world wars that occurred in the last century. And that's just talking about uh, what our country was in, involved in. And, and all of the, the horrible things and tribulation that has occurred in human history, nothing will compare to what happens uh, during uh, this uh, last uh, three and a half years of the seven-year uh, tribulation. Again, read, you can read all about it in Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter uh, 6 through 19. And unless the Lord had shortened those days with His return, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those that have become born again during the tribulation period, uh, whom he chose, he shortened uh, the days. If he, didn't, if he did not return, uh, everything would be destroyed. And then if anyone says to you, uh, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, uh, you know, trying to deceive the Jews during that period, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all these things beforehand. Even the Antichrist, you know, we, we have a trinity, a holy trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the tribulation period, there is an unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And the, the Antichrist will have a right-hand man by the name uh, he, he referred to as the false prophet, and he will do tremendous miracles that will wow the world and uh, convince them to believe uh, in, in the Antichrist. And signs and wonders and miracles, but uh, done, as you see there, show signs and wonders to deceive, not for the purpose of drawing people to God, but in order to deceive. And, uh, and here is this another warning uh, against uh, believing any of these things or being deceived even during the tribulation period for those saints uh, into following any of these false Christs. And then uh, he said, but uh, in those days, after the tribulation, and, and here uh, Jesus describes his second coming. Uh, during all of this mess, after that tribulation, uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of the heavens will uh, be shaken. So you'll have this heavenly uh, cataclysmic events going on. I mean, you go out and sometimes you go out and you see like a shooting star. Did you see the shooting star? You put Pinecrest or whatever, wow. Well, it'll be another thing when they're shooting all over the place and coming into the atmosphere and 
uh, and everything's gone wild uh, in, in the heavens, not just uh, on the earth. Everything is going to be shaken, and then, uh, then they shall see the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. When the Lord comes back at His second coming, it will not be in the subtle way that He came into the world in His first coming, being born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem, quietly in that way. When He comes back, everybody is going to see this. There's no secret second uh, coming. I think the Jehovah Witnesses have an idea that it, when did He come? Sometime back in the 1900s and He's just laying low. No, that's not what uh, the Scriptures say. When He comes back, it's going to be, uh, nobody's going to miss it. And, and then He will send His angels, gather together His elect, from the four winds, every part of the world, and the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part uh, of heaven. And uh, so he'll send out his angels to gather the elect, those Christians that have survived tribulation, saints have survived the tribulation uh, period, and God will gather them together, and then kind of uh, after a, a period of judgment, then they will... Uh, then go into and, and become kind of the foundation for the thousand-year uh, reign of, of Christ. And so, and then Jesus, he closes this teaching now, this abbreviated teaching on this, and he said, now learn this parable. This is what we need to learn from all of this, this parable from the fig tree. Uh, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it uh, is, uh, is near at the doors. And assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus uses imagery that everybody can understand. He talks about a fig tree, and in the springtime, the fig tree begins to put out new growth, uh, new leaves, and when you see uh, what it, uh, a fig tree does in spring, it's a sign of what? It's a sign that summer is coming. And so Jesus is saying, when you see these things, uh, uh, the generation that sees these, these things occurring witnesses the things that are detailed here, including the abomination of desolations. It, 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 it is a witness to uh, the, the second uh, coming uh, being near. And when he says, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words will by no means uh, pass away, uh, that uh, all of the things that Je Jesus has spoken of here, it's going to come to pass. And the fact that these things are going to come to pass is more sure than the existence of the heavens and the earth. And more sure than the seats that we're sitting in or the building that we're in. This is, it's Jesus' way of saying, this is the future. And that's, that's what prophecy is. Prophecy is the future in advance. And that's what, that's what he has uh, given us uh, uh, to here, uh, given it, it, it to us. I think it's marvelous to realize when, uh, this, just as God has given us an account of uh, man's origin, our, our, our beginning in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, so too the Bible gives us a record of, uh, of how human history is going to end. 
and it's going to end with man's rebellion against God not being allowed to go on forever. God will put it to an end, and ultimately He will usher in something that is incomparably wonderful in the form of uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then, and then ultimately that will give, away, give way to a new heavens and a new earth. I do like happy endings, and I think the fact that we do like happy endings is because We've been created for happy endings, and God, God has uh, one of those uh, four, certainly happy endings for, the, for those that have trusted in, uh, in the Lord. Well, all of this then raises the question of how are we supposed to live uh, practically? What's the practical impact that knowing history in advance, as Jesus gives it to us here, how is that supposed to impact how... Uh, how, how we live now as Christians, awaiting, uh, awaiting uh, the rapture of the church and, and then what happens subsequently. He said, but of that day and that hour, no one knows. Isn't it amazing? I mean, it's very simple. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So nine words. Uh, but of that day and hour, no one knows. And yet continually, every year, it seems that somebody is making a new prophecy, uh, giving us the day that the Lord is going to return for the rapture of the church. We know that this, this can't be the second coming, because we will, the, the tribulation saints will know the day of the second coming, because Jesus said again to Daniel that from the time of the abomination that causes desolation, uh, you know, to the coming of Messiah will be, I think it's 1,360 days, uh, something like that. And so once the abomination of desolation occurs midway in the tribulation period, if you were interested in it, you could start marking it off and you'd know the very day that he's going to come. But we know the rapture of the church, nobody knows the day or the hour. So it, it, this can't be talking about the second coming, it's talking about the rapture of the church prior to all of that. And so, but of the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, uh, but only the Father knows. And so he said, take heed, stay alert, and watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is, the time of the rapture, Jesus removing us from this earth prior to this judgment that God is going to pour upon the earth uh, for the rejection of his son, a determined rejection uh, against his son. And so he said to watch, take heed, watch and pray. He said it's kind of like a man going into a far country, the imagery of the ancient world. Here's the boss, here's the owner of the house and the farm and the ranch, and he's going to go into a far country on business or pleasure, and he leaves his house and he gives authority to his servants, and he gives each of them enough work to do in, in his absence. And then he commands then the doorkeeper to watch for his return. And if a master did that, uh, and not telling you when he's going to come back or give you a day, what does it force you to do? It forces you to watch and wait every day. I, you know, I, 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 and, and so, uh, it, so he said... And he commanded the, the doorkeeper to keep watch. Watch, therefore, verse 35, for you do not know uh, when uh, the master of the house is coming in the evening, uh, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. And be watching, and because you don't know when it's going to happen, lest 
uh, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping or spiritually unaware, back in the world or, or, or not uh, uh, occupying until he comes. And what I, uh, uh, and what I said, say to you, I say to all, and that is watch. And one of the parables in Matthew chapter 25 where God gives a certain sum of money to each of, uh, of his, uh, a man does to each of his servants, and, uh, and he tells them to occupy until I come. Put that money, put the gifting, put my call upon your life, put your Christian witness, put it, just put it into circulation in, in the world. Just be in the mix of the world, be an influence for me in the world. And that's just occupy until I come. Take care of business until I come. And that's how we want the Lord to, uh, to find us. Sometimes people, we look at the signs of the times and we, we realize that the, the Lord, we hope, certainly hope He's very near, but we, we see the signs and uh, we can look and go, wow, the Lord's return appears to be so close. I don't know if I should go to college or I don't know if I should get this training or, or whatever it might be. I'm just going to uh, do this or that. But the, the, all we want to do is just do what God is telling us to do. And if he wants us to go to college to become a medical doctor, and it's going to involve all of these years of education, and yet that's where he wants us and, and has us stationed. And he comes in and, and the, the first year of our residency, before we've even established our own practice. Uh, we were occupying until he came. We were being busy about what he called us to do. And so that's, that's what we want to do. I personally think, I, um, uh, I think it's a good thing that he hasn't told us the day or the hour. I mean, you just stop and think about it concerning yourself. I know you're all, very, you're all superior to me uh, in every way. But um, I, I don't have a big slacker inside of me. I'm a type, a type A person in, uh, on, left to myself. And, uh, and so there's not a big uh, part of me that's in that, that kind of category. Nobody has to really light fires under me or motivate me or any of these kind of, kind of things. But if I did know the day or the hour, it would be a temptation to say, you know, I'll just become a rocket man like two weeks prior and uh, really go after this. And it does something very, very healthy within our lives, not to know the day or the hour. Through 2,000 years of history so far, I don't know how long it's going to go, but it's been a heavy, it's been a healthy influence upon the body of Christ to live in such a way of watching and waiting. It certainly has a purifying effect upon our lives. We don't want to be found uh, engaged in a backslidden state or a carnal Christian uh, condition when, when he returns. And, uh, and, and so this, uh, uh, the, the wisdom of all of it. And, I don't, and it isn't a case of, okay, all right, this, now he's, he's heaped one more thing on me that I've got to do. Now I've got to go out to my car and get it started and on top of buying gas for it. Now I've got to be watching and waiting. It isn't like that at all. At the end of the book of Revelation, it says, uh, the Spirit and the Bride, the Holy Spirit and the Bride. We are the Bride as Christians, the Bride of Christ. Uh, we say, come, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, He cannot come quick enough as far as I'm concerned. Any old time, it'd be great. 
uh, before the worship song that we're going to be singing here in a couple of minutes would be great. But I'm busy about his business. I'm working. I'm, I'm, I'm at it. I'm watching. I'm waiting. I'm praying. Uh, but what an exciting thing to live life realizing that at any moment that rapture could occur, we'd be taken into glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then all of the rest of this begins uh, to unfold. It does something uh, very powerful and, and uh, very necessary, I think, uh, within, within our lives. I'd like the worship team to come up. We'll stop there tonight in, in, uh, in that, uh, this place in the chapter at the end of the chapter and not go into chapter 14 and ask the worship team to uh, lead us in worship tonight in closing.